Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include chatter from the TMBA in Houston, my interview with Polinsky Vital Greens, Peter Idziak, on the U.S. Treasury Department's proposed rule that would require real estate professionals involved in closing and settlements to disclose the names of people behind the anonymous limited liability companies, and home sales figures. Today's podcast is brought to you by Encino, makers of the Encino Mortgage Suite for the modern mortgage lender. Encino Mortgage Suite's three core products, Encino Mortgage, Encino Incentive Compensation, and Encino Mortgage Analytics, unite the people, systems, and stages of the mortgage process. See how Encino can support a homeownership journey that your borrowers and your team will love at Encino.com. After last week's January CPI report showed a pickup in inflation, this week will be headlined by the Personal Income and Outlays Report on Thursday. The report contains the Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index. The PCE is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation and is expected to register at 2.4% and the core rate at 2.8%. Consumer spending is expected to have slowed in January, with purchases of durable goods and other discretionary Outlays disrupted by bad weather. Speaking of bad weather, <laughs> well, I'm going to say Houston has bad weather most of the year, but that's more the humidity than anything that's happened recently. It's also the site of the TMBA conference where chatter has been revolving around the wise use of technology, the desirability of better mortgage regulations rather than more regulations. How many politicians seem more focused on their reelection prospects rather than bettering things? and the role of Ginny May, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac going forward. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome back to the show Polonsky Vital Greens, Peter Idziak, to talk about the U.S. Treasury Department's proposed rule that would require real estate professionals involved in closing and settlements to disclose the names of people behind the anonymous limited liability companies. Mr. Idziak has represented clients in all areas of residential mortgage lending for more than a decade. Lenders regularly call him for advice on regulatory matters and compliance issues concerning all aspects of consumer lending and real property law. His expertise spans several statutes, including the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act, Truth in Lending Act, Equal Credit Opportunity Act, Fair Credit Reporting Act, Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, and the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. Oh, I see why we use acronyms in the industry now. He also routinely advises clients on the Veterans Administration, Federal Housing Administration, and government-sponsored enterprise requirements. The Treasury Department's residential real estate proposed rule, which would require all real estate professionals involved in closing and settlements to disclose the names of the people behind the anonymous limited liability companies and trusts involved in all cash residential property sales transferred nationwide. I feel like I'm taking your thunder now. Uh, <laughs> what's your... Can you kind of give listeners a, an overview of the the residential real estate proposed rule and how the mortgage industry should feel about it? Sure. So um, this rule is being proposed by the Treasury Department in a bureau within it, uh, which is called FinCEN, which stands for Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. And it builds on uh, these geographic targeting orders that have been in place for a while in certain areas of the country. And the goal of that was to capture certain information 
of buyers and sellers of real property when the buyers were legal entities. And the reason that FinCEN is involved here is that there is uh, a lot of uh, money laundering that goes on in uh, these residential real estate transactions where there is no financing. And these were sort of outside the purview of any reporting that FinCEN was able to see because there weren't uh, lenders involved, there weren't suspicious activity reports being filed. So FinCEN uh, has these geographic targeting orders. Well, they've decided that uh, there are gaps in their coverage, that the geographic targeting orders in the areas where they are have been successful at um, either preventing money laundering or in asset forfeitures after the property has been acquired by uh, an illicit actor. So they proposed this rule that would apply nationwide to um, basically require that people involved in real estate closings and settlements submit reports and keep records on these non-finance transfers of residential real property to uh, legal entities. And now this is new to trusts. So the goal here is to basically uh, get a modified and slimmed down version of a SAR on every cash transaction in uh, one to four unit real property in the United States that would be reported to FinCEN. Uh, the goal for them is that this will give them uh, better investigative tools, to uh, pursue you know, uh, illicit actors. And I think a big concern too, and they've reported that uh, politically exposed persons, and this is a term that means current or former senior political figures, their immediate family and close associates, that these uh, politically exposed persons account for over 50% of the residential real estate fraud in the country. So there are national security implications at play here as well. And I think that's a a big driver of this uh, expanded initiative. Even if they can collect all this data, do you view it as useful? Like, what is is it worthwhile? What's your take on it? Well, you know, here's here's the interesting thing: is that um, uh, in the proposed rule, FinCEN cites uh, an NGO's report that there was apparently two point three billion dollars that had been laundered through the real estate market uh, between twenty twenty one. And uh, and 2016, so that works out to about 460 million dollars a year. Well, FinCEN also estimates in this rule that the annual training costs may be about 476 million dollars a year at the high end. So, from the industry's perspective, you know, of course, they're going to uh, bear the bet the cost of those. Um, training costs and reporting costs, it's sort of a net negative. So we're spending more money than we would uh, if we you know, eliminated all of the fraud. But I think uh, going back to it, I think that there's uh, a big national security focus at play here. So uh, you know, what, what are these reports going to be? The estimate is about 850,000 filings annually. Uh, in the past, uh, uh, investigative uh, and law enforcement agencies have said that these the GTOs have been useful either to start investigations or as sort of secondary sources of information in active investigations. And also um, in regard to asset forfeiture, the ability to get funds back. So I think the government definitely sees a value to this. Whether industry does, uh, you know, it seems like it's sort of a, a push in terms of the benefit to the country versus the cost to industry. That's a good point. I, I want to back up here a little bit. So the Treasury proposes a rule. What's the process like once a rule has been proposed and what's the timeline? 
So on this one, um, uh, in December 2021, uh, they issued what they call an advance notice of proposed rulemaking. And this was uh, basically a way to say, hey, this is something we're looking at, uh, an area that we're looking at proposing a regulation, but we would like a lot of industry feedback first to help us with that. So they received a quite substantial number of comments, and now they've issued what they call the um, the proposed rule. So this rule, which was published uh, February 16th in the Federal Register, has a 60-day comment period where um, stakeholders, you know, anyone can basically comment on the proposed rule. And then the comment period closes, FinCEN will evaluate those comments, and then at some point, they will issue the final rule. And there's no date set for that. But uh, FinCEN expects that once that final rule is published, that the rule itself and all those requirements would go into effect one year after the final rule is published. Uh, one interesting point here is that there is uh, the modified form is referred to as a real estate report, and it actually hasn't been uh, created or, or released publicly yet. So that is perhaps something that may delay a little bit the implementation of this is that the actual method of collecting information and and how it's being you know collected and transmitted to the government may be something that uh, receives commentaries and comments as well. Well, maybe there's even loopholes in the proposed rule because it looks like depository institutions have to maintain a customer due diligence program. But as we know, a lot of independent mortgage banks or they're not depository institutions. So but what's the best way for the, the mortgage industry uh, to, to think about this or, or prepare themselves? I mean, there's, there's various parts that do apply to independent mortgage banks mm-hmm. and various parts that don't. Uh, it seems a little convoluted, no? Well, this this so this would this rule would apply to finance transactions if the person extending the financing is not subject to AML requirements, i.e., has to have an anti-money laundering program in place and has to file SARS. So you know you're right that only depositories are subject to this customer due diligence rule, um, but the sort of the concern here is that the loophole was these cash transactions and that in private. With private mortgage lenders, you know, you still had sort of someone that was looking out for these suspicious transactions and filing reports. Um, So there's also another rule that has gone into effect under the Corporate Transparency Act, and that's the reporting of beneficial ownership information by LLCs and other legal entities. So one of the goals here is, is that I think, as you point out, is that under a customer due diligence program or under an AML program, unless you have a suspicion as a lender, you keep that information to yourself on who the beneficial owner is. So between the beneficial ownership interest rule under the Corporate Transparency Act and now this, more information is going to sit with FinCEN so that FinCEN as a government entity and so they can coordinate with federal and state uh, enforcement agencies will have that information sort of be able to, you know, in, in their mind, see the whole picture. Well, maybe a, a question worth asking is, are there things mortgage companies can do today to reduce fraud that you view as maybe a better solution than the rule? Well, I, you know, I, I think our industry definitely takes it seriously and um, has been for a while. 
formulating and following their anti-money laundering pro- programs. I'd say the, the, the biggest issues that they still deal with is wire fraud. And a big part of that is um, educating consumers on when to you know, know or suspect that an email or a communication is fraudulent, uh, you know, w- when not to respond to an email that's asking for them to, to launder money. And so to the extent that you are a mortgage lender and your AML program, you know, is, is maybe uh, a little stale, I think it's important to constantly keep that refreshed and constantly be aware of the fraud that is occurring in the marketplace. You know, one of the big uh, trends that we're seeing now is uh, individuals that are taking uh, out home equity loans on properties that are owned free and clear, and they're doing this all uh, virtually and online, so there's no face-to-face meeting. And it turns out that the the quote borrower that that you've uh, been dealing with is not the actual homeowner who has no idea that someone is taking a home equity loan out on their home. Uh, loan closes, money's wired to a bank account. Those funds are then immediately wired offshore, and maybe a, a month or two later, the homeowner gets something in the mail. Uh, saying, you know, uh, something to do with your new mortgage. And they call up the lender and they say, what are you talking about? You know, I, I didn't take out a mortgage. Um, so I think those are those are two of the areas. Um, as far as uh, illicit actors that are seeking financing for that, for these, uh, you know, again, I think it's sort of just being on top of uh, something that smells. Um, you know, we deal a lot in, in our practice with um, buyers and sellers that are entities. And a big part of that is sort of, uh, you know, who are these ultimate owners? And it's really looking into it and making sure that you have the correct information. But at the end of the day, um, I would say that one aspect of um, the customer due diligence and to a certain extent the AML programs that is lacking from uh, this new rule is that there is a responsibility on the part of the lender to sort of do their due diligence and sort of investigate whether the information they're getting from the uh, the borrower is, is true. Whereas under the new rule, um, in sort of an effort not to put title companies, settlement agents, and attorneys in that position, there is the ability of the uh, buyer to self-certify to who the beneficial owner is. So, you know, on the one hand, it's good for those folks because they don't have to sort of spin up an AML program. But on the other hand, you know, if someone's already engaging in fraud, how willing are they going to be to be truthful on their self-certification? I like that you answered that way because I was about to ask you for my final question. You know, before this rule goes out, and this is obviously attorney-client privilege here between me and you, you know, what are the ways I can launder money today? But uh, you, you gave some common things, so I appreciate that. Part of it is that um, you do also have to report on who's signing on the identity of who signed on behalf of the, the entity. But, you know, that could just be, you know, a mule or a proxy or something like that. Um, but, you know... Looking at what FinCEN has published, you know they do catch uh, this fraud, and I think uh, a big part of it is that they're really concerned with those politically exposed persons um, because uh, some of the examples in the uh, proposed rule deal with 
uh, like a former president of an African country that, uh, you know, had stolen several millions of dollars from his country and then laundered it through a trust uh, purchasing real estate in the United States or Russian oligarchs that um, purchased U.S. property in their family members' names uh, after the invasion of Ukraine to avoid sanctions. So I think that's a big part of this rule, too, is the national security focus. Uh, more so than just the, you know, oh, no, there's, you know, fraud happening in the real estate market. The other thing I would just say that's going to be kind of big on this um, is the the sort of privacy concerns that people have, average Americans, because this now includes all trusts, right? So your little revocable living trust where you and your spouse set it up and, you know, you're the the beneficiaries, like that gets reported to the government now. Whereas previously that that information, you know, especially the beneficiary information, wasn't really with, with a few exceptions in certain states publicly available. I mean, it's still not publicly available, but known to a government entity. Sure. There was some comments from some law enforcement agencies that, you know, we're not really sure how valuable this is because there's so much information. And if you're gonna now have, uh, I think it's the high end estimate is 850,000 filings okay, you've got all this data. How do you make it useful? Peter, I I really appreciate the time as always. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. We learned yesterday that new home sales and pending home sales, which mainly consist of existing units, were weaker than expected in January, despite tailwinds from lower mortgage rates that lifted existing home sales during the month. New home sales registered 661,000 versus 690,000 expectations. And though it was a 1.5% increase from December, it was lower than December's initial reading of 664,000, which was revised down to 651,000. The steady state of new home sales reflected stable lending rates and pent-up demand in January. Today, the U.S. Treasury has more month-end supply to digest, including $42 billion of seven-year notes to last at the coupon supply until the mini-refunding in the week of March 11th. There are several economic releases scheduled, and the calendar kicked off with durable goods for January, down 6.1% with a negative revision to the prior month. Later today brings December home price indexes from FHFA and S&P Case-Shiller. Consumer confidence for February, Richmond Fed Manufacturing and Services Indices, the Dallas Fed-Texas Services Index, and remarks from Vice Chair for Supervision Barr. We begin the day with agency MBS prices, better by a few ticks or 30 seconds, the 10-year yielding 4.26 after closing yesterday at 4.30%, and the two-year at 4.68. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. I've just finished reading a book about the world's greatest basement. It was a best seller. <laughs> Today's podcast is brought to you by Encino, makers of the Encino Mortgage Suite for the Modern Mortgage Lender. Encino Mortgage Suites, three core products, Encino Mortgage, Encino Incentive Compensation, and Encino Mortgage Analytics unite the people, systems, and stages of the mortgage process. See how Encino can support a home ownership journey that your borrowers and your team will love at Encino.com. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at Robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.